Good morning. We start our journey with Jeremiah this morning, and the obvious place is chapter 1, verse 1, which goes like this. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the other passage I want to read to you is from Matthew chapter 13, it's verse 44, just one verse, a whole parable that Jesus teaches on the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All great stories are of exploration and battle. If you go back to the Greek um, classics, you've got the Odyssey, the, the, the great journey of exploration, the Iliad of all the battle. Now, when we were children, we would um, make up stories of treasure. And hunting treasure had all the elements of uh, a great story. It had maps and journeys, it had excitement and exploration, it had dangers and victories. And the story that we are in at the moment, the, the larger global story that we are in now, and the one that I'm more interested in is the story that you and I are in, the story of our lives in the context of the larger story, is, is one of, of exploration and of battle. The same things apply. It's just that we need to recognize what's actually going on. And often what happens is as we grow up, we lose the element of excitement and joy. The life we live becomes what we think is uh, dull, numb, humdrum, ordinary, in the contrast that is so often given to us in our various media. Now, Je Jeremiah will help us this morning, I hope, keep our lives real and robust and vigorous and growing. And so how do we do that? And the passage that I just read to you from Jeremiah 1, first three verses, are critical if we are going to understand it. And you say, well, what exactly is there in all of that? Because it's just a whole bunch of names and places and there are times in other places in the old testament in particular and even in paul's letters where there's just a list of names um and this one uh, in the old language begat this one and that's and there's a genealogy at the beginning of matthew there's a genealogy at the at the end of paul's letters he says greet this one and that one and there's all these names of people that we have often no idea who they were except that they were important in some way in Paul's world. Now, what this says to us, the fact that there's a list in Jeremiah of um, names and places, is that there is no spirituality, and, and this, is, this is the heart of it all this morning, there is no spirituality that is not rooted in names and places, in people and in geography. And yes, it's messy, and, and, and to be honest, most of real life is quite mundane. 
And what we tend to want to do is to look for the high points, the holidays, the, the, the places where there's some sort of excitement. But our reality, the reality of daily life is getting up and brushing your teeth. It's, it's dealing with uh, um, a conflict in the family. It's, it's, the, it's the messy, ordinary, everyday. The people around you, the places that you have to go to, your home, your work, your context, the place where you live your story is exactly where you work out your salvation. It's exactly where you grow. Now, what Jeremiah does in the first three verses, what, what, what it does for us is that it plants the spiritual life firmly in its context. That's the world that was given to Jeremiah. This is the world that is given to me. My family, my work, all the stuff that surrounds me, and the same for you, and the same for all of us. And so it's, it's counterproductive for us to have wishful thinking that we should be somebody else. We should be somewhere else. We deserve something else. And so Jeremiah begins with his own name. And it follows hard on that with seven more names, personal names, individual names, concrete, real people and places. So there's, there's history, there's context, there's reality. It's not vague. This is not some esoteric kind of spirituality. And the, there's been a subtle shift in um, Western culture and also in the church over, over a long period of time. And the expectation is this, that everything should be getting constantly better, nicer, more comfortable. And the expectation that we have of a good life is actually a trap. So when it doesn't happen that everything turns out nicely and as comfortably as I would like it to be, we often struggle to make sense of it. And you see so many people who live angry lives, depressed lives, and one of the biggest games in town is the game of blame. And what people tend to do in that kind of context is to then look to the past and it becomes rosy. It becomes so amazing. Or they look to the future in the hope that maybe something better will pitch up. If we want to be um, disciples of Jesus, if we want to be true apprentices, pilgrims on the way which is Jesus, we have to engage with the reality that we are faced. We have to deal with what's in front of us on a daily basis. Our reality, the place we are now, the people we deal with all the time. And there's good and there's bad. But it, 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 it's what Jeremiah is saying is, you don't have any other present but the present that you are in. The names that are around you are important. The place that you live and the places that you go are important. And that's why names and places are important. That's why all these individuals and this geography is, is, is the place where our spirituality is rooted. It's ordinary, it's messy, but it's ours. It's the only one we've got. And apart from this, any other kind of spirituality is false. And, it, and I'll be as blatant as that. So what was Jeremiah's context? Well, 
it wasn't exactly uh, friendly. All these names and places that he, he lists here convey a backstory that unfolds as you read through the book of Jeremiah. And I want to encourage you to go and read through as you have leisure, to go and read through. Take a modern translation and read Jeremiah. But shortly after Josiah's death, who's mentioned in here, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, had become undisputed master of the entire region. And Israel, Judah were on that narrow strip of land where there were always wars being fought. And Egypt had come up to, to press their sovereignty, their sovereign rights over that area. And it was a constant battlefield between Babylon and Egypt at this particular time. And the kings of Judah got into the situation where they kept changing their minds about who they were going to back. They kept hedging their bets in their quest for protection of their little country with these two huge superpowers. But it proved dangerous, and especially dangerous to oppose Babylon because they were ruthless. And each time Judah rebelled against Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar would descend on them in a brutal campaign. And there were three of them. The first was in 597, where he came down and the young king Jehoiakim and 8,000 royal uh, household, aristocracy, military, skilled personnel were deported to Babylon. You can read that in 2 Kings 24. And Zedekiah was set up on the throne as a vassal king, if you like, appointed by Babylon. After 10 years of struggle, Zedekiah decided he wasn't in for all of this anymore. So Nebuchadnezzar came back and showed absolutely no mercy. He destroyed the temple, he destroyed Jerusalem, raised it to the ground, forced Zedekiah to watch his sons being slaughtered in front of him, then had his eyes, eyes gouged out and was taken off to exile with a further 3,000. Only the poor were left, and it was called a deserted land. And even in that state, there was a further uh, uh, exile of people when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came down in 581. Now, archaeology shows us just the fury and the intensity of the misery and suffering that went on with all of this. But if you really want to read how desperate it was, take the book of Lamentations and go and read it. Just read it in a sitting, also in a modern translation, to just get a sense, feel exactly how, um, how much they had to deal with at this time. I won't give you all the grisly details, but they describe empty squares, crumbling walls, damaged gates, empty cities where jackals were walking. A little bit like what we have, not quite with jackals, but um, the sense that people were, were starving. And one of the commentators wrote this, the people of Israel had looked into a terrifying void. Everything they knew and loved and gave them meaning had gone. It's not pretty. It wasn't comfortable. But having lost so much, some of them, some of the people were able to create a new vision out of the experience of grief and loss and humiliation. And how did they do that? Jeremiah was key. He's the one who helped them. 
In fact, he was the one who led them. Now, it wasn't easy because people aren't in the habit of facing their own pain or their own darkness without a fight. I mean, I'm like that. I just, you know, one, one resists having to deal with the stuff that, are, that is unpleasant. So some of the prophets were saying um, that Yahweh, God, lived in his temple in Jerusalem and therefore it could not be destroyed. And they were quite arrogant about all of this. And Jeremiah was telling them that that was dangerous nonsense. If you don't mend your ways, he said to them, the temple, the city will be destroyed. And as far as they were concerned, this was treason. And it, all, it almost resulted in Jeremiah's death. They wanted to execute him, but he was acquitted and he carried on. He didn't stop. Jeremiah became a word for pessimism. Uh, but let's be clear here. Jeremiah is not being negative. He was right. And his unflinching and courageous stand in all of this shows for us a vital principle of what it means to be a disciple, a disciple of Jesus. We must see things as they are. We must recognize the reality of where we are planted right now. And we deal with what's in front of us, the people and the places. You cannot function spiritually or practically if you bury your head in the sand. If you refuse to face the truth, however frightening or difficult or unpleasant or messy or ordinary it may be. But we are masters of denial. And so were they. And Jeremiah, well, let's put it this way. Jeremiah didn't want to be a prophet. He felt compelled. He tried to stop. But he said when he tried to stop that it felt as though his bones and his heart were on fire. In the end, he was a laughing stock. He was humiliated, ostracized, abandoned, and all sorts of things happened to him. But instead of denying it, opting out, saying, oh, it's too hard, I can't do it, and blaming God, doing all sorts of other things, he kept at it. He kept moving forward. There's an incident that happens, and we'll read a few uh, verses from chapter 29 in Jeremiah in a second, but shortly after the first deportation to Babylon in 597, Jeremiah heard that there were some of the people who had gone into exile. He was still in Jerusalem at this point. They'd gone into exile, and some of the so-called prophets were giving the exiles false hope in saying that it would all be sorted out pretty soon. They would be back home, and it was all going to be rosy. And so Jeremiah wrote them an open letter, and it was addressed to all of them. And he said to them, listen, guys, you're not going to return anytime soon. In fact, Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed. So resign yourselves to 70 years of exile. And he says to them clearly, he says, settle down, build houses, marry, have children. Get yourself bedded into the society that you're in. Live your lives, is what he's saying. And above all, don't give way to resentment. And here I read it to you. It's from Jeremiah 29, verse 7. He says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city, which you have been carried into in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, 
because if it prospers, you also will prosper. Now, some of these passages have been taken and lifted out of context, and we, we, we tell ourselves these things to make us feel good. I want you to know the context of that prosperity is when you bed down, dig in, live in the context that you're in, face everything that comes your way. That's the field that you've been planted in. A little later in the letter, he writes this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And here's a passage that has often been quoted out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and, and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. The Lord is saying, don't worry, I've got all of this. Right after they hear that, it, that it's going to be 70 years that they're going to be in exile, he says, keep strong, keep going. This is not a surprise. I'm going to prosper you. There's going to be a real sense that I know the plans I have for you. Now, um, I want us to be clear. The, the whole thing about growing up and maturing as a disciple of Jesus is by facing the reality that you're in now. Because it's not a surprise to God. As we read there from Jeremiah 29, he says, I know the plans I have for you. By going through what's in front of you, by not avoiding it, trying to minimize it, trying to deny it, by, by, by moving forward day at a time through the life that you have, we grow up and mature in Jesus. Obviously not by just um, sort of floating down the river. There's a sense in which we have to energetically take hold of it. But by not trying to circumvent it, by not trying to deny it and wish it away, we, we recognize what's there. We live fully in the place that we are planted with the people in front of you. So again, we come back to Jeremiah 1. Names and places, this moment, this day, your context, that's what is really important. Names. And the names we find in Jeremiah 1, Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, Jeremiah, Hilkiah, Ammon, the, the names that are in front of us this morning, Mark and Maria and Dave and Isabel and whoever who is part of our family. Places and the places that are mentioned here are Anathoth and um, Judea and Jerusalem, but it could be Bishop Stortford and Elsinham and, and Harlow and um, Stansted. Because the life of God grows in us where we are. That's what incarnation is, really. And so as I end, I want to just come back to the parable that we read right at the beginning. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You and I are planted in a field and there's a treasure in it and we can amble around the field and 
and and for all the world not look for anything but when when we take hold of when we give everything that we have for the treasure that's in the field when we give everything for the now that we are in the context our own reality now then there is a sense of we will find stuff now i said at the beginning we used to play a game about treasure hunting all that kind of stuff all the excitement and the joy and there is when we commit our lives to following jesus we will be found as we read in jeremiah 29 when we explore what's around us we find that there is a richness there is a treasure in the people and the places that we are in the context that we are there is gold but we have to be willing to pay for it the other thing that you must note and just as an aside as we end is that when you go in search of buried treasure pirate show and jesus said to his disciples in this world you will have trouble you'll have trouble you will have all kinds of difficulties but the point is that you have to face them squarely, deal with what's in front of you, move through it. That's what it means to grow up, to mature, to develop as a fully-fledged apprentice, disciple, follower of Jesus, a pilgrim on the way. And he says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. People and places, the, the context of our lives is where we grow up and mature in Jesus. Amen.